Well, good morning. It is uh, such a pleasure to be here at Kirk of the Plains with all of you. It's always a joy. It's a special joy for my family because this is our first in-person worship service in three months. So we are very glad to be here and to open God's Word with you. Uh, Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning really just at verse 12 of this chapter. It's a very short verse, but I hope that you'll come to see a very precious verse. Uh, But we'll read beginning in verse 1 to get uh, a bit more of the context. So Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 16 is what we'll read together this morning. The Apostle Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's ask His blessing on our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege that it is to worship together. Uh, We have felt the lack of that these past months and are grateful that you've opened uh, doors for us to to be together and uh, pray that you would bless us now, that you would meet with us in your word by your spirit. We pray that you would uh, encourage uh, all who are gathered here as well as those who are uh, joining us from a distance and pray that you would help us, Lord, to see Christ clearly and to show Christ clearly in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a little article called, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? And in that article, he he tells an interesting and I think a very timely and relevant story. Uh, He tells us about uh, an officer in the U.S. Army 
who was out in some great city out west at a time, Warfield says, of intense excitement and rioting. And the streets of the city he was in were just completely overrun by, by crowds of people, and chaos was everywhere, and everyone seemed to be in turmoil. But as this officer was walking down the street of this city one day, he looks and he sees a stranger who, in the midst of all the chaos, is completely calm, completely composed. And it was such a striking contrast to everything that was going on around that as the stranger passed by, the officer kind of turned to look at him. And as he did that, he saw that the stranger had done the same thing. He had turned to kind of look at the officer, and they find themselves staring each other in the face, and the man walks up to the officer and, without saying anything else, just thumps his finger in his chest and says, what is the chief end of man? Which is the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And kids, some of you may know the answer. The, the officer was a bit surprised, but he replied. He said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The stranger smiled and stuck his hand out and said, I could tell you were a catechism man. The officer said, I was thinking the same thing about you. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could share stories like that today? If there could be something about how we carry ourselves, something about how we live, something about how we look that just marked us as believers in Jesus Christ, that marked us as Christians. And in a day like ours, especially, where there's so much panic, there's so much chaos, there's so much fear, wouldn't it be wonderful if our lives were marked out as different from the world? But that raises the question, doesn't it? What, what, what is it that should mark us as different? What is it that should mark us as followers of Christ? How can we walk in a way that will gain the attention of the unbelieving world? There are obviously a lot of passages we could look at to answer that question, but, but one of my favorites is found in, in the verse we just read, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. It, you'll remember that uh, this whole chapter, Romans 12, is really designed to demonstrate what a gospel-shaped life looks like. If you remember what Paul has been doing in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters is this grand tour of Christian theology. He talks about who God is and who man is and our need of salvation and what Christ has accomplished in salvation and how he has brought together a church not only of the Jewish people but of Jews and Gentiles from, from across the world. And after giving us this grand tour of theology, in Romans 12 he turns to ask, so what? How does all of that theology filter down into our lives? And so chapter 12 is really kind of digging into Paul's application of his teaching. And in verses 9 through 21 specifically, Paul is unpacking what it means to be a Christian. And he does that by just piling up all these commands, all these imperatives. Uh, you may actually have a heading in your Bible that says something over these verses like the mark of the Christian or, or the mark of Christianity. And so today we want to look at just three of those commands, which come to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those are the three things we want to consider together this morning. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So let's start with that first command, rejoice in hope. What does that mean? Well, the key to understanding this command is to, to get our heads around what the Bible means when it talks about hope. What is hope? 
example. We use the word hope all the time, don't we? Uh, but when we use the word, we, we usually mean uh, something like wish or desire. So if we're talking after the service and I say, yeah, I, I really hope I get a promotion next year, or we just bought this used car and I'm hoping it'll last for a couple of years till we can get something nicer. But what I'm communicating is, uh, I really want this to happen. It'd be nice if it happened, but I don't know if it will or not. It's something desirable, but but certainly not something that's certain. But, of course, that's not what the Bible means when it uses that word hope. In this context, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not just talking about something that we, we want to happen. It's talking about something that will happen. It's not just about a desire. It's talking about, really, a, a confident expectation. That's how we could define biblical hope. It's a confident expectation. It's something that we look forward to with absolute confidence and absolute certainty. So what is it? that we are called to hope for. Well, Paul doesn't really tell us in this verse, does he? He just says, rejoice in hope. And I think the reason why he can kind of move so quickly here is because he's actually unpacked what we hope for and what hope is quite a bit earlier in the book. If you remember back to Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about hope. Listen to what he says in verses 22 through 25 of Romans 8. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now listen to this. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now notice that Paul mentions both hope and patience right next to each other, as he does in our passage we're looking at today. And there's a lot going on in these verses we just read, but, but just notice two of the things that Paul says we hope for as Christians. First, he he says that we hope for the redemption of creation. Paul looks around at all the suffering, all the evil in the world, the viruses, the tornadoes, the pollution, the injustices, and he reminds us that we have hope. That is, we have a confident expectation that God will put all things to right in the end. Paul says, God will fix all that is broken in our world. That's the first thing that we hope for as Christians. And secondly, he says that we hope for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. So so notice there are two sides to this hope, aren't there? Uh, On the one hand, we have a hope that is cosmic and universal, the redemption of the world from sin and corruption. That's what we hope for. And on the other hand, we have a hope that's personal and specific the redemption of our bodies and our souls from sin and corruption and death. So when Paul talks about hope, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that's what we hope for. We're hoping for the day when everything will be set right, the day when everything will be made new, the day when sin and sorrow and suffering and disease and the very fallenness of our world is dealt with once and for all. We are hoping for a renewed humanity 
that dwells in a renewed creation for the glory of God and the good of His church. And Paul says in Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in that hope. We're called to look to the future with a confident expectation that that is what is coming. That's what Paul is talking about when he speaks about hope. But of course, that's not what we experience right now, is it? Just look around you. As you read the headlines every day, as you see the latest national crisis unfurl, do you see a renewed and redeemed world? Or do you see chaos and confusion? As you get older, and all of us are getting older, would you look at your body and say, oh, it's been perfectly redeemed? Or are we reminded every day that sin and sickness and sorrow are part and parcel of being human? Even as we sit here this morning, it's so wonderful to worship together, and yet we have to be together and apart because we don't want to give each other some sickness that might cause harm or death. Our bodies are frail. Our bodies are weak. We feel the lack of all that is held out for us in this hope. We simply don't see the fulfillment of what it is that we hope for. But Paul says, that's the point. That's why we call it hope. If you have what you are hoping for, by definition, it's not hope. Hope is what we do not yet see. And I think that's why Paul adds a second command here. He says, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Let's look at that second command together. Be patient in tribulation. Uh, The word that's used here for tribulation has the idea of being pressed or pressured by something. So it could be very broad. It, It could talk about... Uh, difficult circumstances, it could be loneliness, it could be sickness, it could be persecution for your faith. And probably all of us as Christians, especially if you've been Christians for a while, have experienced all of those things at at one time or another. Uh, The reality is, being a believer doesn't make life easy. In fact, Paul speaks of tribulations here as a normal part of the Christian life. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you happen to be one of the unfortunate few that goes through some suffering, here's how you handle it. He says, no, be patient in tribulation. Trials are coming. Here's how you conduct yourself. And we know that to be true not only from God's Word, but also from the world that we live in right now, right? If if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that in this world we will have trouble. It seems like in every area of our lives, in health, in politics, in economics, in social tensions and relationships, in everything, on all sides, we just see overwhelming examples of brokenness and suffering. And no doubt there are many other trials that uh, many of you are walking through that, that don't show up in the headlines. Some of you may be fighting with loneliness or depression. Some of you may long for a marriage or a child that God hasn't chosen to give you at this point. Some of you may be facing the, the loss of income or, or of a business. I'm sure all of us could, could mention trials and troubles that, that we are looking ahead at even this week. Those trials are real, Paul recognizes, but he doesn't let those define the Christian life. Remember a few minutes ago we said that, that one of the marks of the Christian is found in how they respond to those trials, how they respond to that 
suffering. And I think that point becomes clear when we when we bring these two commands together. You see, the first command, rejoice in hope, is about how we are to respond to the prospect of the future. While the second command, be patient in tribulation, is about how we are to respond to the pain of the present. It's as if Paul is pointing out that, that there can be a gap that exists between what we hope for, on the one hand, and what we have, on the other. What we hope for is the renewal and redemption of all things. What we hope for is freedom and justice and life and joy in our bodies and spirits. What we have is tribulations. We have trials. We have sufferings. But as Christians, we're called to respond to those trials with patience. But how do you do that? How how do you be patient when there's very real pain that you're walking through right now? How can you rejoice in something that you don't even have yet? It's, It's a hope. Well, that brings us to Paul's third command. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. You see, these three commands are not separated from each other. They, they, they hold together as a, as a unit, as it were. And it's actually prayer that enables us both to rejoice in our future hope and to be patient in our present pain. Matthew Henry said, Prayer is a friend to hope and patience. Prayer is a friend to hope and patience. All three of these commands hold together. We can almost, you know, draw them in kind of a circle with one arrow leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing. Each one promotes the good of the other. Here's how one commentator put it, talking about hope, patience, and prayer. He said, each of these exercises helps the other. If our hope of glory is so assured that it is a rejoicing hope, we shall find the spirit of patience and tribulation natural and easy. And since it is prayer which strengthens the faith that begets hope and lifts it up into an assured and joyful expectancy, and since our patience and tribulation is fed by this, it will be seen that all depends on our perseverance or being constant in prayer. Now, if you look at your life and you say, I, don't, I wouldn't describe myself as a hopeful person, and I wouldn't describe myself as a patient person, and I struggle to be disciplined in prayer, where do I start? If these three all kind of go around together, how do I, how do I hop on this merry-go-round? Well, in one sense, the, the place to begin is with prayer. Because prayer is, in one sense, the, the, the parent of hope, the parent of patience. We can describe a hopeful life as a praying life. We can describe a patient person as a praying person. And that means, to go back to the question we started with, what is it that marks you as a Christian? Well, we can answer that this way. A Christian man is a praying man. A Christian woman is a praying woman. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. And since prayer is so vital then, it's important for us to spend some time looking at what the Bible has to say, both about the purpose of prayer and the practice of prayer. But let's start by looking at the purpose of prayer. 
what, what is prayer for? That's the question we have to answer. And I think Paul hints at the answer to this by, by pla- placing this call to prayer alongside that command to have hope and to be patient. You see, put in this context, Paul is making clear that, that prayer is not about changing God, is it? It's about changing you. It's not about reshaping God's will. It's about reshaping our wills. In other words, we don't pray to set God straight. We pray to set ourselves straight. And that's actually one of the distinguishing marks of believing prayer. Worldly prayer thinks something like this. We can all be tempted to this. We think, okay, my life is a mess, and so I'm going to come to God and tell Him all the things I need so that He can give me what I have or give me what I need for my good. But biblical prayer thinks like this. It says, my heart and life are a mess. And so I'm going to ask God to make me believe and feel and want what I should for His glory. You see the difference there? One attitude toward prayer is completely man-centered, while the other is gloriously God-centered. And all of this is wrapped up in the purpose of prayer, You see, prayer is designed by God's grace to pull you out of yourself, to get your own thoughts and fears and worries to be quiet, so that God's thoughts and God's commands and God's promises can ring out loud and clear in your life. So if you find yourself, or maybe I should say, when you find yourself wrestling with doubt or discouragement, you find yourself fighting fear or depression, one of the very best ways of combating those things is to get on your knees and pray. But that still leads to the question, how do we pray? What does the Bible tell us about the practice of prayer? Well, the Bible says a lot about this, but let's just limit ourselves to what we see in this verse, Romans 12, 12. Paul says, be constant in prayer. What does that mean? Be constant. Well, the word that's used here has the idea of being devoted to prayer and of persisting in the discipline of prayer. So it takes into view both our attitude towards prayer as well as our action in prayer. So Paul's really getting at this question, how do you view prayer? How do you view prayer? Well, if you think about the answer to that question, here's a kind of a diagnostic question you can ask yourself. Do I treat prayer like exercising or like eating? That might sound like a weird question, but just track with me for a minute. Do I treat prayer like exercising or like eating? Well, what's the difference? Well, we all know that we should exercise. We know exercise is important. We know it's good for us. We may even want to do more of it. But uh, for many of us, exercises, practice, exercise, practically speaking, is kind of treated as an optional thing. If I have the time, if I have the energy, great, I can maybe exercise. But if not, it's, it's not really something we view as essential, and many of us may go pretty long stretches without a whole lot of exercise taking place. But that's not how we treat eating, is it? We treat eating as essential. Uh, You can't treat eating as an optional extra. If you don't eat, you will die. You will starve. And so all of us, and and maybe some more than others even, uh, continue steadfastly in eating. 
You might even say we're devoted to it. We're constant in it. Well, what about prayer? Do you treat prayer like going to the gym? It's something that uh, you know you should do, but you don't get around to it as often as you'd like. Or do you treat it like your food? This is essential. And it's interesting that, that Jesus actually uses this image in John chapter 4 when he says, it is my food to do the will of God. And the will of God in this case would be to pray. And so Paul says, be constant in prayer. That's what Paul's getting at. It's an echo of what he says elsewhere when he tells us to be people who pray without ceasing. Being constant in prayer means we we spend time praying. Here's what John Piper said about this uh, in a sermon he preached on this passage. He said, the word constant here doesn't mean that every minute you're praying. It, it means you persist in prayer. You persevere in it. You stay at it. You, you're devoted to it. You don't give up or slack off. Be habitual. In other words, Paul is calling all Christians to make prayer a regular, habitual, recurring, disciplined part of your life. Does that describe anything of your life of prayer? Is it regular? Is it habitual? Is it recurring? Is it disciplined? If you're like me, you'll find that it's frighteningly easy to fall into prayerlessness. In fact, it takes zero effort to neglect prayer. That just kind of happens. But being constant in prayer, as Paul commands, is actually a hugely difficult task. And part of the challenge of this comes from our schedules, from our agendas. Many of us have a lot going on. Many of us are wearing multiple hats. You, you may be a spouse, a parent, a child, a co-worker, an employer, a citizen. The, the list goes on and on. And, and so it's not easy, is it, to build our lives around prayer when we have so many other things that are competing for our, our time, our energy, our attention. And so we we let prayer slip between the cracks because we're just not sure how to fit it in. It's easy to sign off on the idea that prayer is important. I've never been in a church or met a Christian that would say prayer doesn't matter. We all know it's important. But every church I've been in and, and every Christian I've talked to has said prayer can be hard. And oftentimes because it's hard, it's left undone. It's neglected. But remember what we said a moment ago. Prayer is not an optional extra. It is what fuels our hope. It is what fuels our patience, which means if you remove prayer from its central place in your life, you will not be a hopeful person. You will be full of fear. You'll be full of doubt. You will be second-guessing God's will at every step and turn. If you're not a praying person, you will not be a patient person. You'll find yourself filled with, with anger, with anxiety, with frustration, with impatience. Have you ever wondered if your struggle to be hopeful is maybe really a result of a poor prayer life? Have you ever asked yourself if your impatience is maybe the fruit of a failure to pray? So what what would it look like then for us as Christians to build our lives around prayer? What would it look like then for the members of of this church, Kirk of the Plains, to be people who rejoice in hope, to be people who are patient in tribulation? Well, of course, the paradigmatic answer to that 
question is found in the life and ministry of Christ. And I think we see it especially in how Jesus carried himself in his suffering on the cross. You see, Jesus shows us by his life and sacrifice what it means to rejoice in hope, what it means to be patient in tribulation, and what it means to be constant in prayer. Just think of how Christ carried himself as he, as he marched toward the cross. Even as he's approaching a level of suffering and shame that we can scarcely imagine, he did so rejoicing. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says. It tells us that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in the very next verse, their author draws a line between Christ's conduct and our conduct when it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus rejoiced in hope. Think of how Christ carried himself in the suffering of the cross itself. As he was marched from one mock trial to the next, being accused of one false charge after another, he was able to bear it patiently and willingly. When they accused and mocked him, he was quiet. When they flogged and flayed him, he endured. When they pushed thorns into his brow and his hands were pierced with nails, he bore it all. Jesus was patient in tribulation. And think of how Christ began and ended those sufferings. He did it with prayer. The night that he was going to be betrayed, he knew what was coming. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what did he do? He prayed. He wrestled with God in the Garden, and through tears of blood found the strength in prayer to face the hellish torments of the cross with hope and with patience. And after he had walked through all this suffering, all this shame, what were the final words of Christ before he died? They were a prayer. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. From Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus was constant in prayer. Now Jesus is more than our example. He is our hope. He is uh, the one to whom we pray. He walks with us in our trials and in our tribulations. But Jesus is not less than our example. And as Hebrews 12 reminds us, we should consider Him who has rejoiced in hope and consider Him who has been patient in tribulation and consider Him who has been constant in prayer. That's what it looks like to obey these commands that Paul lays before us. And when we are able, by God's grace, to obey these imperatives, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer, we're not just being marked as Christians, we are modeling Christ's likeness to a watching world. When we look around this world and we see all the divisions, all the hatred, we see the riots and the injustices that fill our streets, it becomes undeniably clear that what this world needs is Jesus. They need Christ. So where will they find him? Where can your neighbors and your relatives 
and your co-workers and the people on your Facebook feed see Christ? Will they see something of Him in you? Will they see a person who rejoices in hope? Will they see a person who is patient in tribulation? Will they see a person who is constant in prayer? How you and I live, how we respond especially to suffering, how we respond to our circumstances, to our tribulations, should be different from the way the world responds. The world responds to these things with frustration and despair. But we're called to respond with patience and hope. And friends, God especially uses the power of prayer to give us the patience and the hope that we need to endure. And He shows us what that looks like in the life of Christ. And so we have a unique opportunity in this moment, at this place in our culture and in our history to be different. We have a unique opportunity to show the world where our confidence lies. And so as we close out this worship service together, let me encourage you in the Lord to meditate this week as individuals, as a family, on the commands which Paul gives to us today. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Amen. Please join me in a time of silent meditation as we think on all that we have heard today.